Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. Let, let's continue here uh, of our study in 1 Samuel. Uh, we're getting into the more famous chapters, uh, chapter 16 and even more so chapter 17. Uh, so we're going to read a fair bit here. We'll read all of uh, 17 with a little bit of 16 as well. And we'll look at a few points. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get something out of it. Amen. So if you were with us last week in the park, we looked at you know Samuel anointing David there in the first half of 16. Uh, the second half of 16, we'll read it. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, it has some complicated things in it. And then we'll get into the story of David and Goliath, which everyone generally knows. Amen. So chapter 16, starting there in verse 14. And you'll see why when we read this. Complicated, right? It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. And Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent him with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play, and relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. You know, you can see why that's a very challenging passage, right? Uh, and it's a, uh, it's a hard passage, I think, especially for uh, a lot of our modern... Um, our, modern, our modern perspective where we like everything clean-cut categorically. Right? And we've got to understand that, that the, the, the idea here that we see in this text and we read and we think, well, how can a loving God send an evil spirit to torment Saul? That doesn't seem very nice. Well, again, we've got to realize that, that our definition of nice is maybe not God's perspective on this. Right. We've got to understand that. that, that the, for the Jewish people, for a vast majority of their understanding, uh, pre, pre-Jesus, the idea that, that, uh, that God would send an evil spirit to torment wasn't something they were uncomfortable with. Right? Their worldview, even at that time, they, they assumed that's what's happening. Even the, the servants, they see Saul being tormented, and they, they, they assume it's all from God, right? We tend to look at the world and we, we say, well, everything good that happens is from God. Everything bad that happens uh, is, is from the devil. There's limits to that, though. Right? And, and then one of the things that when we, when we see the world that way, uh, we in, in, inadvertently, I think, are diminishing the sovereignty of God. And the Jews were big believers on this. And I think we've got to have a, probably a deeper understanding of this. Everything in life happens at God's command. He is sovereign. Whether it's him sending, you know, some, some Hebrew commentators try to translate it 
uh, a tormenting spirit. All right? Uh, you know, maybe it's that. Or, you know. Either way, look, look, the reality is God is in control. And whether God is sending an angel that torments Saul, or whether God is allowing a demon to go and torment Saul, the point is that God is behind it. And that does push us in terms of our understanding of the sovereignty of God. All right? Now on the same side, we don't need to freak out. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible. Okay? It's a rare occurrence. This, this uh, section here does not occur in a vacuum either. God has been working with Saul, trying to help Saul, trying to correct Saul, trying to bring Saul to repentance for a while. Saul's not listening. So much like what happens with Pharaoh, God ups the ante because God wants everyone to understand that he and he alone is in charge. And for Saul, when God says, hey, Saul, it's time to move on. Got another one coming in the way. He's going to lead Israel. Saul needed to get out of the way, but Saul's not going to do that. Now, in a twist of irony, what does God do? Sends a tormenting spirit, which then brings David into his inner chamber, which is ironic, you know, in and of itself. Again, demonstrating what? That God is sovereign, which is a major point that we're meant to gather from that text. Amen? So don't overly camp on it or get perplexed by it. The point is, God is in control, and if you listen to him and follow him, you're not going to be tormented by an evil spirit from God. Let's read on. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched their camp at Ephes Damon, between Sukkah and Ezekah. We all know where those places are, right? Just kidding, right? Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, then, then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephronite. In Judah, Jesse, who had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd. 
loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Goth, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt him, his family, from taxes in Israel. Still powerful motivators today, right? right? David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done to the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to say to, to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came out and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to him, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but a battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand and struck down the Philistine and killed him. 
David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. And he killed, after he had killed them, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then a minute of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharm road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapon in his own tent, a little souvenir. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the armor, army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. They kind of knew him before, but now that he's going to be married into the family, they got more questions, right? That's what's happening there, right? The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. And David, with David, still holding the Philistine's head, whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Phenomenal uh, story, and one that you're probably well acquainted with. Uh, we'll have a prayer, and then we'll look at some points uh, about a great story. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you. We thank you for, you know, obviously such an impactful and inspiring story, God. And we pray that you help us, God, this afternoon as we, as we look at it, God, to, to look at it in the way you want us to look at it. To see it in, in, in a way, to see David, to, to see ourselves uh, in a way that ultimately brings you glory and honor and praise. Uh, be with us, God. May your spirit open up our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, it is. I mean, it, I, I don't know. You could probably argue this is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's one a lot of people have heard. Uh, they've made movies out of it. There's, there's an endless amount of books written by uh, people about this story. Uh, and it's one in particular that I think strikes a, cur- a chord with a lot of people. Uh, and we, we can draw a lot of meaning from it. Right? Uh, I would appeal to you to, to look and to understand the significance of this verse. Right? Uh, it says, For 40 days the Philistines came, came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Right? And the significance for, for, the, for the Jewish people in this rep- repetition of 40 is, is massively significant. The author, the, the, the writer here is, is trying to drive into us the significance of this moment. That 40 is often depicted as, as a period uh, of testing or trials to reveal the heart. Right? A period of testing and trials that, that reveals the heart. Right? And there's lots of famous passages about this, you know, the idea of 40, and you can uh, search through them. But one in particular is there uh, in the book of Numbers, you know, chapter 13, verse 25. Uh, in Israel, ha- has traveled through from Egypt, through the, the, the wilderness, through the desert. They've reached the edge of the promised land, and they send spies in to have a look at the land. All right? Uh, and the spies go in, and, and what do they come back with reports about? Giants. What do they spread throughout the camp? Fear. Right? Except for Joshua and Caleb. We try to reason with people to see uh, the, the situation from a faithful land. Israel doesn't see it that way. They allow that fear to infect them all. And God turns them around for 40 years in the wilderness. Right? And here we have this uh, you know, Philistine army championed by Goliath uh, coming out for 40 days and taunting Israel. You know, and what's, what's the byproduct of that period of testing? Is fear. 
right? Fear, several times in our text, right? Verse 11 and verse 24, same idea, right? On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. 17.24, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Fear is an interesting thing that's being brought out of their heart. Uh, God has said about David that David is going to be a man that's going to lead Israel differently because he is a man after God's own heart. Even as the previous chapter, 16, which we looked at last week, as Samuel was trying to figure out who do do I anoint king, uh, God rebukes Samuel because Samuel is looking at the outward. God wants him to look at the inward, the heart. What we see here in David is not a heart of fear. It's a heart of tremendous faith. Right? Uh, We've got to understand that that's, that's the setting, right? And then what comes out of David's heart uh, are two very significant principles. Right? David understood the, that insignificant instruments, insignificant instruments, the, the, the weak are actually the ones that are strong. Those that don't seem to have any power are actually those that have tremendous power. You know, and the narrative, the, the, the writer here goes to great lengths to help us to see this juxtaposition between Goliath and David, right? And some of them, you know, kind of go over our heads there. Uh, but in verses 4 to 7, right, you get this description of, of Goliath, you know, three meters tall. That's, that's tall, right? And then, you know, again, they, it's a different measuring back then. They weren't using meters, right? You know, but man, the, the, most commentators would say, man, that's somewhere between seven and nine feet. He's a big dude, right? He's a big guy, right? Uh, he has, you know, over and over, as you, as you probably noticed, everything is mentioned as being bronze. Because in that period in history, that is cutting edge technology. That's the latest drone equipped with the most powerful weapon, right? For them and there in battle, man, bronze was, man, you, that's tough to beat. It's tough to beat, right? He had, Goliath had the latest tech. His armor alone weighed 58 kilograms, right? I only weigh 58 kilograms. That's true, man. I don't think they do, right? I don't know. Someone in here weighs 58 kg, not me. Right. Yeah, well, look, Maccas and, uh, and fish and chips, you're not going to weigh 58 kg, right? But his armor alone weighs that, right? And you can picture someone that weighs 58 kg in your mind, which is not me, right? But it, that's heavy, right? Uh, he, he, even the, the tip of his spear, the iron tip of his spear alone weighs 7 kg. I mean, this is a big guy, right? He's a big guy, right? And the, and the rider is hammering that home. And David is on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Uh, he is the youngest of the sons. The least, right? As we talked about last week, when when Samuel goes to appoint a new king, Jesse doesn't even think about it, right? And and some commentators think that it was kind of the rule of the land in Israel at the time that if you were under 20, you were not fighting in the battle, right? So David's a teenager, right? Not not getting the call up, right? Uh, His job is to be a shepherd, to look after those few sheep, as his brother so kindly says to him, uh, and essentially be a delivery boy. I mean, literally, take some, take some food for your brothers, right? Take them some macros, take them a little bit of KFC, bring something for the commander so he gives them a good position, right? Hiding behind everyone else. Uh, you know, to, that, that's David's job, right? Again, 
two opposite ends of the spectrum of importance, right? David is, by every, every account, uh, has zero chance of winning this battle. But Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, he makes a point. He says, look, whenever God has done a mighty work, it has been by some very insignificant instrument. When he slew Goliath, it was by little David, who was but a youth. When God would slay Sisera, it was a woman that must do it with a hammer and a nail. God has done his mightiest works by the meanest instruments. That is a fact most true of all of God's works. This is not an isolated story in the Bible. This is a repetitive story in the Bible. I mean, even Moses, as he goes against the great armies of of Egypt, what what was his prerequisite? He had been looking after a bunch of sheep. Did he come with great military power? No. Came with a rod. That was it. Right? You know, did he have great eloquence? Not at all. Right? Most people think he probably had a stutter. And, you know, even he didn't want to speak. and got someone else to do a lot of the speaking for him. Right? Again, this idea that this is not a new concept. Right? This is not a new concept. Right? That God chooses to work through the insignificant. Now, what's interesting here in our text is as David comes on the scene, he has this conversation with Saul. You know, and Saul says to him there in verse 37, right? Uh, go and the Lord be with you. He hears David's very faithful speech, and he tells him, hey, go and the Lord be with you. But then he tries to dress David up in his armor, right? David puts it all on, says, I can't do it, I'm not used to them, takes them off, goes out as he was, just dressed, you know, in, in normal clothes, not battle clothes. But it's an interesting thing. And again, we're going to, Saul is going to become a secondary character from this point forward in, 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 in the books of First and Second Samuel, right? Uh, but he is going to be continually brought before us to, to show us the danger of, of grasping to, to power when he was told to let go of that power. Of doing what he does here. Saying the right thing, right? Lord be with you. But those are hollow words. God has already departed from Saul. Saul still says the right things. He still sounds the part. But the reality is, his heart is hell-bent on disobeying God. His heart is dead set on not following God's commands. But he's saying a lot of the right things. And that's a scary thing for us who are religious. We can become like Saul. Saying a lot of the correct things, but those words becoming hollow because we don't really believe them. Again, a lot of this, co- this concept of, man, God works through insignificant instruments. That, that when we are uh, readily admitting our weakness, that is actually when we have the greatest strength. Right? We can accept that principle in our minds as we sit here on a Sunday. But then when we massively mess up or err or you know, leave the narrow road and, and, and make poor choices and someone tries to raise that to us and we react by defending ourselves, we're showing our words to be hollow. We kind of understand the principle of, okay, Our greatest strength is when we actually embrace our weakness. But when it really comes to the battle moment, 
we're operating by the principles of the world. This is what you see in Saul, trying to dress up David in his armor, trying to fight just like the world fights when God operates in a different way. David doesn't want to borrow. You know, the church in Corinth had a similar struggle. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29, you know, Paul writes, he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Here's some encouragement. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's kind of some backhanded encouragement, isn't it? Right? Paul said, hey, I just want to remind you guys that you're nothing. Because the Corinth church had originally accepted that reality, right? I mean, to become a Christian, what really is the prerequisite? To understand, man, I'm lost, I'm sick, and I need Jesus. They accepted their weakness. They had done that, right? But they had begin, begun to buy into the, you know, the, the, the predominantly uh, you know, power-centered, uh, highly educated rhetoric uh, you know, cultural influences that were operating there in the Roman world. And they began to care a lot about, about the external. And they began to even look down on Paul as an apostle, thinking, you know what, he's not actually a great speaker. Right? He doesn't even charge us very much. Let's get someone else who charges us heaps more because that will be more prestigious. And they began to buy in, kind of like Saul was buying into. Well, let's, let's, let's dress it up and make it look really good instead of embracing the gospel principle that says, no, no, no. When you're weak, then you have strength. When you're humble, that's when you lift it up. Because God is a jealous God. He's not interested in us boasting about ourselves. He's not interested in it. He wants us to accept and understand the reality that He and He alone is great. You know, the second principle we see here from David is that you're never really an underdog when you're under God, right? You're never really an underdog when you're under God, right? And it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, there, there are, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, who's a famous, I don't know what he's a famous, podcaster, I don't know, journalist, writer. He writes a book on this, this story, right? He kind of quasi-Christian background. He was raised Mennonite, uh, but it's kind of one of those books where someone writes about a Bible story, but then never mentions God. So it's a little bit interesting, right? You know, but he writes an entire book on this story of David and Goliath about underdogs, right? You know, and how, how can an underdog overcome giants, right? But when you read this text, what's interesting is that David doesn't see himself as an underdog, right? Everyone else does. His brothers included, for sure all the other Israelites, I mean, chapter 17, verse 33, Saul straight up tells him, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Even Goliath, when David comes out, verse 42 to 43, he looks David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Everyone in this story sees David as an underdog, except for David. Except for David. Now, if you've ever played sport, you know, sometimes you get people who fake being an underdog. Uh, I had a friend in in Melbourne, this guy named Josh Cram, 
Uh, and whenever we played FIFA, he would always act like he was the underdog to try to make me overconfident, right? Some of you guys that play sport maybe know this tactic, right? Uh, you act like you're, you're rubbish, uh, and it puts all the pressure on the other guy, right? That's not what David's doing here. David legitimately believes he's in the position of strength. Because he sees the world, he sees his situation from a different vantage point of everyone else. Everyone else is looking at the external. David's deeply in touch with the internal. Everyone else is seeing the world from a a physical resource uh, perspective. David is seeing the world through the spiritual resource perspective. All right? And it's not just a faking, it's not faking it. I mean, look at some of these things he says. All right, verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I mean, that's, those are funny words from a guy who just showed up at the battle with a donkey loaded with bread and cheese. You know what I mean? Whose own family didn't even consider him useful enough to be part of the battle. Your job is to bring some meat or some bread and some cheese for your brothers and to hopefully butter up the commander a little bit. But, but this is what he comes with. This is what he leads with, right? And the more he talks, the more it becomes very apparent his perspective is different, right? Verses 36 to 37, this, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Right? Okay, now the delivery boy, looking a little bit tougher now, right? right? I don't know, you fight lion or bear. Maybe not so much, right? But Okay. He's got some confidence, right? He's, you know, again, further on, says to Goliath, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And again, in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but a battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Again, David's speeches, they they scream out that, hey, he's looking at things from a different perspective. He's not seeing himself as an underdog. He's not seeing himself uh, as one that has limited resources. You know, and I think, again, this is, is, you know, you can tell why the story is so incredibly popular because, man, we we can relate to that. We can relate to the times in our life where where we think, you know what, life would be better if I had fill in the blank. My spiritual life would be, it would be better if only this would be different. From, from the world's perspective, from everyone's perspective, the, the entire thing is stacked against David, but he doesn't see it that way. Because he knows, you know what? If I'm on the side of God, I'm going to win. If God is with me, it doesn't matter. He, he understands the depth of that reality and how it transforms everything that he is faced with in life. And we can see here in this text, like I said, why this is such, a, such an inspiring story. And we can look at even those two principles that, that David operates by, that this understanding that, that God, time and time again, takes the insignificant and uses it to accomplish his will. All right? And we can, we can look at his faithful perspective of, you know what, if, if God is on my side, then I'll never be an underdog. 
And we can look at that and then we can, you know, do what, what so many books say to do, right? Picture your Goliath. Picture the thing you're afraid of. Uh, follow David's example and then you'll be victorious, right? But there's a problem with that. Because the reality is when we read this story, in our heart of hearts, if we're honest with who we actually relate to, it's not David. It's not David. It's the fearful people. We can try to muster up courage. We can try to convince ourselves, but the reality is, I think in our heart of hearts, we know that. We know that we relate more to the brother than other Israelites. Right? And you can try to look at the story in an allegorical way and, and get this idea, and this is a bad joke, I'll just preface that before I say it, that, that, that following David is a way to get ahead. Yeah, it's a bad joke. It's, it's kind of a good joke because he does, he does get ahead at the end, right? He gets Goliath's head, right? You know, but we can read it that way, but there's a, there, there is a problem with that. And I think the reality is, is that we know we're more like the fearful Israelites. You know, we got to, you know, consider Goliath's words. God speaks through, through donkeys sometimes and also wicked giants, I think. Goliath's appeal is, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of the living God. Give me a man and let us fight each other. All right, now this is more efficient warfare, right? Choose two, let them battle it out on everyone's behalf. Uh, you lose a lot less people that way, right? It's over a lot quicker, right? Uh, you know, did they actually stick to it? Probably not, right? I mean, you see that even in this story, they don't really stick to that idea, right? But, but Goliath's appeal is an interesting appeal. Is that the, the vast majority of us are too fearful to fight. And the vast majority, there's no way we're going to win. That we need someone to fight on our behalf. We need a champion. We need a man from God to intercede. To stand in the middle. To win battles that we're never going to win. But David's a great hero because David's a shadow of Jesus. But Jesus faces giants that we would never be able to face, guys. We can't face the law. We can't stand up to God's expectation of righteousness. You can't face death. We can't clear our debt before God. That we need a champion. We need someone to stand on our behalf. We need someone to go before us. And that man is Jesus. Timothy Keller makes the point. He says, if we read David, David and Goliath as basically giving, giving us an example, then the story becomes really just about us. I must summon up the faith and courage to face the giants in my life. But if we read David and Goliath as basically showing us salvation through Jesus, then the story is really all about Jesus. And until we see that Jesus has fought the real giants, we'll never have a chance to be able to fight ordinary giants in our life. His dealing with sin and law and death is what empowers us and it enables us 
to face suffering, disappointment, failure, criticism, and hardship. For example, how can we ever fight the giant of failure unless we have a deep security that God will not abandon us? If we purely see David as an example, the story will never help us fight the failure giant. But if we see Jesus as our substitute, whose victory is given to us, then we can stand before any failure and before any giant. This idea that Goliath taunts him and, and begs him to choose someone to fight on our behalf, man, that's a, that's a foreshadowing picture of what Christ does for us on the cross. And we're not meant to go out and fight some battle solo. We've got to understand that these principles that, that David embodies, man, they are made crystal clear in Christ. Well, we talked about this at the end of last week, right? I mean, Revelation 5, you get that epic scene of, of, of God's cosmic throne room, and they're lamenting because no one can open up this scroll, and the solution is a lamb that looks like it's been killed. That doesn't scream strength. That doesn't scream power. That screams something insignificant. Our entire faith, our entire hope, of salvation is based on an event that seemed to be a loss, that seemed to be defeat. But when we understand that, when we understand that 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 principle of, of weakness brings us strength, and we know that in the cross, and we see that in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and when we get that deep into our heart and our soul, man, it enables us to live that way. It enables us to follow after Jesus, to follow after David. It cures our deepest problems and relieves us of all fears. I mean, Hebrews makes the point that that mankind, all our life, we are held in slavery by fear. But fear is only ultimately dealt with on the cross. Where fear, the ultimate fear of death, is faced and conquered. And if you try to take the story of David and just try to Take those principles and implement them into your life in and of yourself. You are being no more like you. you, The person you're imitating in that story is not David, but Saul. And we've got to be a people that that so much more so, when faced with situations, when faced with challenges, step back and think, how does the gospel change what I'm seeing here? How does the message change of me being lost and saved only by the blood of Christ, how does that change how I approach this situation? Because if you just constantly just moralize all the Bible stories into a list of do's, you're not going to get anywhere. But the deeper we can get the gospel message into our heart and our mind, the more we're able to do, as the writer of Hebrews appeals us to do, is, man, fix our eyes on Jesus. Follow him. He is the pioneer. He has gone before us. He's the trailblazer. He's the one who's fought these battles that we could never fight so that we could walk in the same way that he was able to walk. And as as you leave here today, I encourage you, leave here inspired for sure by David, but man, see that he is just a, a dim picture of Jesus. And the giant he faces, man, is, is really just a small picture of the giants that you are faced with. Law, sin, death. And and thank God that he has sent you. A man that embodies his very heart. 
A man who faced down life's greatest challenges and overcame them, not through his great strength, not by force, not by crushing his opponents, but through a radically different way. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand together and sing one final song. Father, we, you know, we do thank you for David. God, we even thank you for Goliath, Father. We know that many times in life you do you know, put in our path things that strike fear at the core of us, God. And we pray, God, that in those moments that we learn to look outside of ourselves, God. To know that we need a champion and we need your son. We need the son of Jesse, the son of David. We need Jesus. God, we pray that you help us, God. Help us to be a people that really you know, believe and accept this idea that one has died for all and therefore all died. That you fought these battles, God, and that through you we have victory in these things, God. And we pray you help us, God. Help us to, to take these, these, obviously, these principles that govern how you work in this world, Father. The understanding that, that when we are weak, that's when we actually have strength. And when we think we're insignificant, God, that that actually is a tremendously powerful position because in our faith is not in self, but in you and you alone, God. Father, we pray you help us, God. God, as we internalize the, the, the gospel, do you help us to be a people that have this unshakable confidence that David had? To know that in all things in life, we can overcome through you and through you alone, Father. Help us to never think it depends on us, God. Help us to never have our faith in us, but to constantly be a people who fix our eyes, our thoughts, our minds, and our hearts on you and you alone. Again, help us in this pursuit, God. Pour out much mercy and grace uh, on us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand together and sing glory, glory. Hallelujah.